0: Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to season three of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. So I am delighted to welcome Dr. Rupi Uchler, who is 37. You're a medical doctor, a best-selling author, founder of Doctor's Kitchen and your app, your new book that came out earlier this year, Cooks, and you're newly married to Rochelle. (laughs)
1: Lovely to see you. (laughs) Lovely to see you too.
0: (laughs) You're loving those labels. Do they fit? Do they feel like you?
1: It's always weird whenever I get introduced. I had like a two-minute long introduction recently, um, and I was at an event, and it was a live in-person event, and it was just me sat on stage just cringing at the sort of accolades that just kept on coming and coming. So I'm really glad that was short and sweet, because it's one of those things that I kind of struggle with when I hear all these things, and I'm like, it sounds really good on paper, but actually... And what we'll get into it today, living day to day, it doesn't feel like there's like success just pouring out of every pore of me, you know? Um, So, yeah. So it it always, always makes me um, uh, love inside. I do. I mean,
0: I I want to get into that. And I, I suppose as you're saying it, there is such a bridge of connection with how, labels are put onto you and how you see yourself and then how you build a reciprocal relationship that feels real rather than manufactured. Is that what it is?
1: For me, I'm really comfortable having been a doctor now for um, uh, over 15, 14 years uh, with being labeled a medic and having my specialty and seeing thousands of patients and in that realm, I I, I am Doctor Rupi. That's that's me. When it comes to being legitimate, an author validated, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Like stamp for approval, like you Got know, the certificate. I started medicine yeah. back in two, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, multiple certificates, like the 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 stamps, the respect from my colleagues, all that kind of stuff. Like I I just feel like that's me. But all the other stuff has come about much later in my career, I'm still sort of getting to grips with when it comes to how I identify myself on a day to day. So when someone regards me or calls me an author, or a a podcaster or a tech entrepreneur, I've sort of put those terms on a pedestal. And the people I look up to have those labels. And I'm struggling sometimes to sort of fit them into my own job description
0: so tell me about a challenge you're facing or or have had to overcome is it around identity and allowing these new growing identities of yours to be valid without certificates and badges and phds
1: It, it is it is just that you've really sort of hit the nail on the head there when it comes to how I regard myself and the sort of trajectory of my career. What I'm finding challenging at the moment is the fact that I am creating a tech company. I am now the CEO of a company that is growing. Um, We are making new hires. It's now my responsibility to create a culture. I have to reckon with the fact that Although I'm not leaving clinical medicine completely, it is not going to be day-to-day anymore, or I'm on my sabbatical at the minute. Um, And if all goes well, I won't be practicing clinical medicine anymore. I'll be doing this other thing. And I think that this comes into what we'll discuss a bit later about how I'm reasoning with those decisions and why I'm making those decisions super intentionally because I think the safe space for me is maintaining my NHS practice and that's something that I'm very happy to do but the less comforting space is actually sort of what I want to do and where I feel greatness and the big impact that I want to have lies
0: I mean, in a way, what you've described is the process of change, no? that the process of change is uncomfortable. What is familiar, what we kind of our comfort zone settles us and supports us and stepping into internal landscape that's matched by an external landscape that's unfamiliar that may be one you kind of accredited to other people that can't be yours. It's scary internally, but also you have other people looking at you having views or opinions like, well, you're okay.
1: And so that disqualifies your own legitimate feelings. It's a really good point because I think there is an expectation from other people that I try not to let cloud my own feelings about my position and my judgment, but can certainly have an impact in the moment um, of my feelings uh, in, in, in the present. And what I mean by that is being called a CEO or being called a founder or having people work for you or having a business that is growing is always seen as a net positive thing, as something that is a privileged position to be in. The reality is I've worked super hard to get to this point. And the other reality is, which is uncomfortable to talk about, is when you are at the top of the chain, it is really difficult. It is really unsettling because there's so many decisions I have to make. And there's people whose livelihoods depend on me. And I take that responsibility gravely and and it weighs on me. We're a relatively small company right now. The aspiration is to be two, three, four times the size we are, not just in headcount, but in all the other attributes of a thriving business. It's that day-to-day that I'm getting used to. If I compare that to how I am in general practice, when I'm dealing with people one-on-one, I still have a lot of responsibility. I still am dealing with people's most precious moments. I'm still dealing with people in their most vulnerable state. And paradoxically, I find what I'm doing today more challenging and it's I think it's because you know the the lack of experience and the imposter um syndrome that I'm I'm experiencing so that there's probably a whole bunch of things bubbling up as to why I'm finding this moment in this particular part of my career the most challenging
0: and it's so interesting I mean I think some of what I understand from you is about re- calibrating your legitimacy to know and have knowledge. And imposter syndrome, the definition of it is that I got here by accident and I'm going to get found out and I'm going to get taken down. And the further you go up, the further you you have to fall. And I was also thinking, and I think this is very relevant to everybody that's listening, is do we all have a set point of what we're allowed to achieve or what we're allowed to seek or what we're allowed to have? And that somehow Mm -hmm. if we go beyond our belief about ourselves, then do we feel incredibly tense and frightened? Or maybe we can let ourselves believe that we have limitless capacities as human beings to evolve and grow and develop, given what is happening to us and who we are.
1: Within that is there's this idea of um, sunk cost. What I mean by that is uh, the, the amount of time and energy expended getting to the position where I am today as a, as a fully qualified medical doctor, as someone who Uh, is invested heavily in their training, the six years in medical school, the people I know, the conferences I've been to, all that kind of stuff. Am I really going to park all that training to follow a pipe dream of creating a tech company that has an above 90% chance of failing? And I have to remind myself of this, like the uh, the sunk cost fallacy, this phenomenon whereby I am unwilling or reluctant to abandon my chosen path that I chose when I was very young, 16, 17 years old, where I hadn't fully evolved as a a person or as an adult, just because I've spent 20 years in in the game. Whereas if I'm really being true to myself, what's actually going to make me happy is having a shot at all the stuff that I'm actually excited about, you know, building the company, having people work toward this mission of sparking joy and generating health. You know, I have to sort of reason with myself that everything that I've done up to this point isn't going to be lost. It's actually going to propel everything that I do next. Those are sort of the things that I'm I'm working through. I think they're such common dilemmas, although yours is a very
0: particular story, I think what is universal is you kind of made a decision about who I am and who I'm gonna be and what's gonna give my life purpose at a young age. And that came from your mother's illness. You wanted to be a doctor and that really worked for you. I mean, you found what you wanted and it has become a big part of who you are. And of course, as you say about sunk costs, you're never gonna lose that. That is part of you and how you got to be here. But what is much more complicated is allowing that purpose and meaning to, in some ways, radically shift. So although the thing is to improve people's lives, like being a doctor, like you, your ultimate goal is the same, what I'm wondering about is, are you allowed to make money? Are you allowed to... Be successful in, you know, and well-known and recognized, or is that limit that you're struggling with?
1: Um, it's very perceptive of you because I haven't really vocalized that with anyone, let alone on a podcast, but it's definitely something that is crossing my mind about the optics of what it's like to be known or well-known. Uh, be building essentially in public Um, and the idea that I'm leaving what is deemed to be a very altruistic profession that isn't impacted by one's desire to consume or, or, or generate wealth. And what I'm doing right now is yes, very much in the same vein of being a doctor. It's it's all about health. It's about generating well-being. But at the same time, there are huge aspirations as well. And I think there's almost a sense of embarrassment around that. The fact that I do want to uh, create a successful company. I, I do want to create an organization that spans different continents and it would generate wealth for Shareholders, even though we don't have investors right now. But that's certainly the path for us. I think there's something embedded within the culture in medicine, perhaps even in British culture as well, that it's not really seen as noble or proper to think about money in that way. Whereas our counterparts in America, it's something that I think is more widely celebrated. And so those are definitely things that I'm reckoning with as well, particularly in the position that I'm in and leaving a profession that the status quo is you flog yourself seven days a week for nothing, no real standard of, of life until you get to this position in life where you don't have dependence, or you have less dependent outgoings and that's just the norm and me bucking the trend or even creating the opportunity where I can buck that is something I I'm, I'm I'm definitely struggling with as well
0: I mean I kind of feel very touched by your honesty and publicly being honest and I you know our values about what matters to us and our cultural values in the uk as you said in america it's very much pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the pursuit of happiness and money is lauded here we have i think we we have it but we have quite a love hate relationship we're slightly disgusted by it it's slightly awful people you become a bad person whereas the nhs is like it was the center of the olympic opening ceremony and you and i've both talked about working in the NHS, and the pride that we feel like we're part of something that's bigger than us that is so valued. I guess where I am psychologically with you is, it's courage. One of your core values seems to be to dare, to have courage to do things that are difficult. It's difficult to become a GP. It's difficult as a British-born Asian to become a GP. And so whilst you feel the fear, you still effing do
1: it, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I think um, you're right. It's definitely been instilled in me to be somebody who goes forward. Um, And I I think I I benefit from the fact that both of my parents are entrepreneurs, even though in me – they want me to choose the safe path. So for years, even to, to this day, um, despite the books and the bestseller accolades and the podcast and all the seeming su- success by being on a BBC programme. Can I just
0: pause you, seeming, seeming, What? excuse me, what's the seeming yeah, yeah. success? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, whatever w- people T-F- say <laughs> but honestly despite all that they always ask me when I'm going back to work when I'm going back to real work and real work for them is being part of the NHS being a doctor doing 5 days a week and it's said out of love it doesn't sound like it to me, but it, I know it's said out of love because the reason they took the risks, the reason why my dad left his home country, he left his family, the reason why my mum, uh, you know, worked multiple jobs and started her own company. Uh, the, the reason why I, I hardly saw my dad when I was growing up is because they were taking the risks so that their kids did not have to take the risks that they chose to. And so when I decide to instill the same sort of courage to, to, to take a dose of what they taught me, um, about and, and apply that to my own life, it's seen as a, a risky move that is unnecessary and and so again that the, there is you know all these different layers of of what leads me to feel um, the indecision and the unsettled uh, how unsettled I, I do feel in the day to day right now whilst i'm taking all these shots on goal it kind of stems from that as well.
0: But what's interesting is children and young people, we learn from what our parents model to us. We don't learn from what mm. they say. So if they tell us to be happy, but they're miserable, we learn how to be miserable. So your parents model to you. Your father came from the Punjab. I imagine he had nothing. Mm. And he built mm. a life where there are there two of you.
1: Yeah. You and a sibling, yeah.
0: She'll love that.
1: (laughs) She'll be always be my baby sister. She's she's only five years younger than me, but yeah.
0: (laughs) You learned from them how to go to a completely unknown country with a different language, culture, or a lot of racism, and get married and have two kids. That's. That's your DNA, no? And your mom the same, being a multiple entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting is my sister is celebrating 10 years uh, as a New Yorker. Uh, so she's been in New York uh, wow. forging her own path uh, for a, over a decade. Instead of going down the science or accounting route, she went down business design she went and became a consultant she's now just started her own company so what what you've just articulated exactly yeah is it what you've just said is even though my parents didn't want that for her either she's learned from both of them we both have Um, and it's it's almost like expected that we were gonna take the riskier moves as well instead of inheriting the family business and having a relatively stable, happy life that we could grow and you know we were born into fab. Um we've decided to to make our own path, put our own stamp in the world. I, I don't think I've actually properly considered that. What do you think, given
0: what they modeled for you, and it sounds like you had secure attachment, that you felt very loved by your parents. And that's probably psychologically what we call in the trade an internal working model. So as much as you may feel afraid, you have, it seems to me, in the way that you relate to me in this moment and the times I've met you before, you have a core sense of security. You have a core sense of being lovable and loved that then you can tolerate the fear, because there's enough self worth. So I'm, ask- I'm answering your question, but anyhow, that's what my thought is around you. But what what, what do you think helped you?
1: <laughs> I certainly feel that has been um, a re- attribute of mine forged by the fact that I've always felt loved, always felt secure. It's an amazing and, thing. Uh, it is. Yeah, I'm really lucky, and it's almost like. I have to stress myself in a way to sort of generate some of that energy that's required to have the grit and the hustle required to do the things that I do on a daily basis. You know, I don't have a chip on my shoulder to, to, to fuel my growth in, the, in that way. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful for that.
0: Your ambition isn't from insecurity. I would say that your success... On Instagram podcasts comes from the warmth that radiates from you. And that is from an inner sense of being lovable and loved. Cause I'm drawn to you. You you know, you're smiling at me now, I feel warm. It's sort of in you and it comes out of you as you're grinning at me. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Uh, I, uh, you're not the first person to say that. Um, I, I recognise that, and I'm I'm trying to I try to figure out why I have a general desire to ensure other people are happy around me as well. Um, it's not that I can't tolerate. Uh, unease or unhappiness or grief around me like I can sit in the shit with people and just be there I don't have this sort of insatiable desire to fix people or to be the joker or always make sure people are, are happy I, 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 don't, I don't have that but when it comes to day-to-day I always want people to sort of be a bit more pleasant than content. I don't know where that comes from and that's why I always smile and that's why when I do podcasts, I'm always sort of joking around or going off tangents. Whenever I do things on TV, I'm always like, well, this isn't as bad as A&E, so we should just have a laugh." And if something goes wrong, like it doesn't really matter that much. And so I have a bit of a happy-go-lucky streak in me. I'm not too sure exactly where that comes from. I'm lucky I was loved. I. I don't think I've had too many issues um, when I was when I was growing up. I can really point to,
0: and also the context of having been in A and E and seeing people really suffer and die, and the responsibility of it's your job to try and make sure that they don't. Like your perception of what matters is expanded now from i mean one of the things that you can bring to this what you're doing is well as much as it's risky no one is going to die so and you can mm. always get back to being a doctor so it kind of changes your perception of what is threatening no?
1: yeah and also, I, I try not to watch the news, which infuriates my wife so much. <laughs> she she always tells me about something that's on the news, and like it's important to to know about events in the world. But when it comes to every minutiae, I find that quite irritating. Because of exactly what you just said, when I was very young and I was working in A&E for the first time, that's when you saw. You know the worst of the worst, the, the most vulnerable in society, the, the heartbreaking moments. And when I'm outside of that environment and I look around, uh, I think you can either go down two paths. One where you just see unpleasantness all around you and you recognize patterns of what you see in A&E in your day-to-day. And the other side, which I always try to remind myself of, is the gratitude, the fact that I can go for a walk and I went for a run this morning, the fact that I get the opportunity of going to see my parents at the weekend, the fact that I've got WhatsApp on my phone uh, or I don't have to worry too much about my 30 pound extra phone bill this month. All those little things that we take for granted are are heightened in my mind because I know how bad shit can be when you're an AE uh, or you're having a conversation with someone about their illness, yeah. For me, I, I think the the greatest gift I've had from choosing medicine is the opportunity to practice gratitude and oh, nice. being a witness to what it's like on the other side. And I, 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 you know that that that, regardless of whether I never set foot into. A clinic ever again in my in my lifetime, which I highly doubt, uh, that's certainly something that will stick with me for life.
0: And that's a big learning, isn't it? When your kind of perception of what truly matters is expanded to an extent that your whole relationship with the minutiae of your day-to-day is changed. For people listening who may hate their job, they may ha- be in a really difficult situation, they may be getting divorced or have a very sick parent or being hit by the cost of living crisis. How do you think gratitude for all of us, whatever our situation and circumstance, how can that help
1: us? I think it's an incredible reminder of the plethora of things that we can be grateful for. And whilst I I recognize that I only need to scratch skin deep in comparison to some people, everyone has the opportunity to scratch deep enough such that it changes your perspective for the better. Um, I'm really lucky to have met parents who have gone through incredible grief, and they still manage to practice gratitude and it anchors them. I'm grateful to my nursing and medic colleagues at work who tell me about their struggles, their dependence, their situations at home, and they still have a smile on their face. And it's not a forced smile. It's a genuine smile. It's a deep seated joyfulness that I get from them. And it's because they might not vocalize it as gratitude but they see gratitude they practice gratitude it doesn't have to be a cliche practice like mine is where i think of three things every day that i'm grateful for that's really good for me and do you write them it. down what do you do with them so i've done a number of different things of the last uh seven or eight years i would say oh gosh i used to write it down I spent three years on Instagram sharing my gratitude practice daily on stories. Yeah. And actually, yeah, it was, uh, it was only meant to be a 15 day practice. I think it was in 2018 when I started it and I said, I'm going to share three things every single day that I'm grateful for. And it was some really big things like, you know, my book got published today or, um, somebody at the supermarket the cashier at the supermarket smiled at me and I started a conversation with them nice. uh, or I saw this really endearing tweet um it, not not directed to me but it was about something else that I saw on on twitter um, the fact that I got up early in the morning and i get to, I got to see the trees sway, or you know I went um for a walk on Sunday at eight a m and no one was around and I got the park seemingly to myself like all those little things and i would I would so just shoot them every single day and it triggered a lot of other people to start their own practice, which i and people still know me Wonderful. as the guy that would. Share things on Instagram. I think I got to a day like nine hundred or something like that. I decided to to stop it because I felt sometimes I was holding back about the things that I was truly grateful for, Um that were quite personal. Because to you me. were
0: worried about showing off, or was it going to make the gods come and take them away if you said it out
1: loud? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't worried about that. I was more. I think it was around the time I started um, dating my now wife, and I didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want it to go on Instagram and uh, and see uh, see that I was too keen <laughs> at yeah. the start of our relationship. <laughs> it's probably something like that and now i just i practice it myself almost as like as routine as my meditation i just think of things and it just grounds me and i I, it's almost like i don't have to be conscious it's almost like my healthy eating habits now i don't have to consciously think about Mm. adding fruits and vegetables and making sure i've got fiber and i've got legumes and stuff it just it just happens it's part of you um It's part of me. It's just part of me. And if you practice it long enough, it just becomes part of you and your psyche.
0: This is a big question. You can answer it big or small, whichever works for you. What are the kind of core lessons that you've learned that still seem valid to you and important?
1: I think, and this is most likely going to be a product of the culture and the religion that I was blessed to have been born into, even though I don't regard myself as religious, I think I'm more spiritual. Some of my earliest memories were going to the temple, uh, listening to um, uh, hymns and eating in the langa, which is, uh, for those of you who, who haven't come across Sikhism before, it's a eating hall where um, uh, you practice seva. so every now and then you as part of the congregation will take on the responsibility of either providing the food, cooking the food, serving the food and yeah. everyone's welcome mm. so the golden temple in the in in um in india is one of the biggest free eating kitchens in the world they serve tens oh of thousands goodness. of people for free every single day it's a amazing. an amazing machine of of just food production. It's it's a real sort of literal manifestation of, of love. And even though I don't identify as a Sikh, those principles that have influenced my own spiritual belief have really been with me my whole life. And I think that's why, you know, we're just talking about how I grin, uh, or, you know, I'm playful. Uh, I, what I'm really doing is demonstrating and expressing love in different ways. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. a feeder. I, you know, create mm-hmm. food. One of the biggest joys I have is to entertain. And family is super, super important to me. And I think those principles, those values have really put me in good stead my whole life. When I was living in Australia, you know, the, one of the first things I did was create, um, uh, do supper clubs uh invite new friends round cook for them um i i created my own sort of like family unit whilst i was out there and i didn't have food. my my literal family around it was through food exactly um i think the 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 grounding effect uh that i've been blessed to have with my sister my my parents you know we're a small unit but i think that has really been important to me because I think it's very easy to lose sight of the, of the fact that you are blessed to have a family. I know it is difficult in a lot of circumstances, but actually, and, and, you know, we've gone through our own difficulties and dysfunction, just like many other families, but keeping everyone close, I think is, um, something that has always been instilled in me, no matter what the weather. Fortunately for me, that's been really impactful. It's this sort of unconditional nature, these sort of like precious hands that are always underneath you. And just the knowledge that if you fall back, they'll catch you. I've always felt supported in that way. And I think it doesn't necessarily need to be through literal family. It's having a community of people around you that can support you in different ways. And I'm fortunate that I was born into that and I, I didn't have to go searching for it. And so never really losing sight of just how lucky I am for for that. And it's something that my dad reminds me about a lot. He always like, you know, you didn't text us today or, you know, we we haven't seen you for a couple of weeks or, you know, those sort of things that might seem a bit abnormal to people that that for me is like my norm. And I, I used to resent it. I really used to resent it. It was almost like a duty um, you know, it's something that I felt was like forced upon me, but actually I didn't realize just how lucky I am. that that was probably the way I would have described it. Exactly that. Um, but now I look back on it, I'm like, wow, th- those values have really, really put me in an, an incredible position. And I just didn't realize that at the time. And I'm glad that I didn't throw that all the way.
0: Rupi, it's such a beautiful image that that you held by this pair of hands that were going to catch you if you fall. I mean, what an amazing internal sense of security that is that enables you to weather all the dysfunction and fights and stuff that we all have in families. My whole book is about there's no perfect family. Where where we love most, we hate and fight most. But what you're saying is that... Often, and you for you, it feels like love as strong medicine is also food as medicine. Like getting round the table and cooking is an act of love. And I I actually interviewed Olya Hercules, who's a Ukrainian cook, Mm -hmm. and her mother says cooking is a as an act of resistance. Food has so many parallel meanings with love and family, doesn't it? The smell of food takes you back 30 years, it can take you back to a place, it can take you back to a person, it can take you back to a love, it can take you back to heartbreak. All of those senses come with food. And it feels like at the heart of what you're doing is that that you're, as much as you needed to probably break away from them and go as far as Australia by the signs of things to get away in, in order to come back. (laughs) I mean, Emily, my daughter, went to Australia, and it was really good for her and me. Um, Yeah. So I kind of get that. Sometimes you really have to go a long way in order to break away, in order to come back. But that knowing that you have family, whether it's family that you find and make, I mean, I guess preferably really family that you're born into, To me, what you're saying is that it's the core of you.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, me running away to Australia actually was really transitional for a number of reasons. Um, A, it was a recognition uh, around the impact of food. That's where I started doing a lot of my deep dives into nutrition and the reason as to why it helped me uh, years ago. And also, it was where I recognized just how lucky I was running away from the family that I felt almost chained to, um, and the dutiful son, uh, role that I played for many years, you know, I, I, I was able to break away from and, the good and in son. That, yeah. And in, and, and in that was a realization of, about just how lucky I was and how grateful I should always be. Um, and, it's also where I decided to start The Doctor's Kitchen as well. So that sort of space was a real transitional point for me and my career.
0: And in, in psych speak, a breakdown can be a breakthrough. So in some ways you had to break out and pull away in order to reconfigure and be yourself. And then that enabled you to re reconnect. But sometimes you have to really end something before you can let it have its value or what's the right word? Do you sometimes have to leave something in order to be able to come back?
1: I wouldn't say that I came running back, um, but it was, (laughs) you know, on reflection, it was definitely that massive action that I required at the time. And that sort of like piecing it back together was... On reflection. Exactly, yeah, it was really transformative If you look at the arc of even my career, you know, first starting on social media and then books and then podcasts and then you know, t v and all that kind of stuff um it looks very purposeful, but actually it's all very scatter and it's all with its own indecision, it's all with its own pros and cons, and sometimes you just need to feel your way through. And me going to Australia was just—I mean, I could have gone anywhere. I could have just moved down the road to a different hospital. You know, there, there, there are multiple ways in which I could have broken away, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just navigating the 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 new arc of my career. I was just sort of feeling my way through and just just being led. By whatever sort of uh, guiding principle there is. I'm a strong believer in there, there being like a guiding force. And I think tapping into it um, requires just a little bit of stepping back and just mm. allowing yourself to be drawn in a certain way. And I think me, I'd step back quite far, to be allowed to just express myself and to be comfortable going in whatever direction um, rather than thinking to myself I had to do certain things because it was my duty or it was my destiny. That sounds really beautiful that you have an innate
0: belief and trust that there is some instinctive kind of force within you that when you let yourself, when you're not kind of limited by others' expectations or kind of pathways set for you, that you you find your route and you find your path. And that actually has been what has happened. And it's both, I guess, holding the daring to and trusting. It's a combination of the two, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and going full circle, I have to realign my trust in that guiding force when it comes to my day-to-day challenges as well, the fact that I will eventually figure it out and I will, you know, make the right moves and even if I don't make the right moves, they are the right moves eventually because this is the arc of my life, You'll the arc of my them. career. Exactly. Uh, I'll always learn from them. that's the thing. And I think again, Going back to this idea of gratitude, if I'm instilled with gratitude throughout everything that happens, then I'll always be making the right decisions. I will always be putting my mindset in the right uh, place for me to enjoy life. And that ultimately is the, the aim. I just want to enjoy every single aspect of it. I want to be pleasant. I, I don't want to have to be shackled by my indecision or the challenges that I inevitably have to overcome during my current business or whatever it might be. Just on reflection, just vocalizing it now, I think it is that sense of gratitude that I I thought I have like every single day, but actually maybe I should be putting it into practice even more so eh, with my current challenges because instead of looking at my current challenges as something that are blockers, is actually something that I should be grateful for. Like I get to play this game. I get to be this role for people. I get to make the decisions that, you know, I, I'm so grateful to have put myself in this position. You know, that's probably what will unblock a lot of the sort of indecisions for me and will pave the way for success. I'm just thinking of this out loud right now, so I probably have to really sit with this uh, after chatting to you. But, yeah, I've just had that sort of realization.
0: And that's such a, a beautiful realization, which, yes, you can work out how to live that, but in recognizing if you reframe your day-to-day from threats of difficulty and self Questioning to opportunities mm. for growth and learning. And of course, it's uncomfortable and it'll be painful. It isn't like growth and learning is so, you know, blissful. But reframing it as from your very core sense of yourself of gratitude will shift your energy, won't it?
1: Yeah, it really will do. And I think leaning into that idea of where there is pain, there is growth.
0: Pain is the agent of change. A very good therapist said
1: yeah uh, yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) just just saying my narcissistic moment (laughs) that's great you lean into that that's fab (laughs) so pain being uh the agent of growth and i really do feel the growth right now i really do feel the new skill set I I I have to reframe that in my mind and expect it. It's almost like people always say when you do a startup it's like going on a roller coaster. And if you go on a roller coaster you shouldn't really complain where you get the dips and then you go up high and then and then it like leaves you on the edge and then you get the funny feeling in your stomach and then it goes down again and it goes all dark like that's to be expected that's the fun bit of being on a roller coaster so me being on the roller coaster complaining that I'm having all these dips and highs it's like well actually maybe I should just be leaning into it and enjoying that and that's where the the growth is that's where the excitement is and uh, instead of that being something that gets me down or um, it, it worries me I should really be looking at it with a fresh perspective uh, and and one of wonder and gratitude rather than something that I, I feel is uh, is described as a challenge. Yes, they are challenges and yes there there are going to be painful moments, but you know I don't need to frame it in that way the whole time. Um, and I think I, I'm at risk of, of doing that.
0: I mean, that sounds so insightful that you've kind of worked that out in these few minutes that we've been talking. In reality, I guess the experience of it is allowing both that there will be times that you feel stuck or lost and confused, but also to hold on to the roller coaster tells me I'm alive and I'm vibrant and I'm learning and this is exciting so that you you move between the two rather than just having one or the other. And they, I think they support each other, both of those feelings, don't they?
1: Yeah. And I think I'm having these realizations because I'm I'm chatting to such a wonderful therapist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rupee. so lovely to see you again. We've only met once before, but I feel like I really know you. I've listened to you a lot on your wonderful podcast, but it's a lovely connection and I really appreciate Oh, I
1: appreciate this. I appreciate this. And like, how lucky am I to get to do this with yourself? It's been wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist and as we all specialise in different forms of therapy it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything but let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Sophie and Emily, lovely to talk to you about Dr. Rupi Ajula, who we had a very lovely conversation about how he was navigating his challenges. And he kind of processed something within the episode, didn't he?
2: Yeah, it was a rather lovely sort of narrative arc almost in in arriving with his sort of fears of the new and the unknown and this new role that he was in and responsibility. To so By the end, kind of reframing it for himself and um, did maybe think about the power of of, of reframing and also the, how different the world can look when we're looking through a lens of fear that really alters how we see and feel about the things around us. And then if we can find a way of soothing ourselves or being able to hold ourselves, not necessarily not being scared, but finding a more connected, safe place then the world can shift again. And we felt a little bit like that's, he was like found a different lens to look through the challenges where it felt like actually these have potential in them rather than
0: just through the lens of fear. Um, And And gratitude, like being grateful for them, that I can whatever, rather than being frightened of what's going to come, whatever is going to come. That was the reframe, wasn't it? It's an opportunity, yeah. And I have quite often with
2: my children, particularly my eldest, tried to talk about the closeness of the physiology of excitement and fear and that it's possible to sometimes think about it more like anticipation, particularly when we're talking about some things like going into an exam or something that you're afraid of. There's not that it's wrong to be scared, but sometimes it's useful to be like, I don't need to be fearful of these sensations. They're just my body getting ready for something, like something new, something different, something that I don't know what's going to happen. And this is just the sensations of my body getting ready for that. And in that sense, it's easier to be with the sensation of anticipation or what's going to happen or not knowing, than having the kind of fear on top of the fear. Like, oh God, this is a terrible feeling. I don't want to feel like this, which really
3: can make it a much more persecutory state. That there's so many things I want to say to what you just said. So I'm yeah, bring spare. it on, bring I it on. Think, <laughs> well, I think one of them, just to what you were saying at the end about talking to your daughter, I just. Think that it's so helpful for children, even from a really, really young age, to understand how their body works and how their brain works in relation to how they feel, because I think the more awareness that you can have of, like, oh, I'm noticing my heart is beating faster, like my hands feel a bit sweaty, like the more you're going to be able to kind of name the feeling associated with that and calm yourself down. I have a brain in my office, like a little, <laughs> not a real brain, a little. <laughs> toy brain and I use it a lot even with really really young children to show them what happens when they panic like the amygdala like this is the alarm bell in your brain and it's going off and these are the things that sometimes help the alarm bell turn off and I think it's really empowering for children who are even really young children to know what is happening in their body because I think it makes it less scary
2: and that you can learn the skills of soothing
3: it's my alarm bell. These are the things I could do. It's my alarm bell going off. What can I do to turn my alarm bell off?
2: What can you do? Yes, what can you do? And the, and the Anna Freud Center's uh, school that they set up for uh, children who've been excluded, they gave them, didn't they, watches. That heart them, monitors. Heart monitors. And then, because I think if you haven't grown up, if you haven't stayed attuned to your body for whatever reasons and there are many reasons why we cut off but then it's hard to read those signals you don't naturally attune and that kind of external number they could watch go watching their heart run up would be like okay this is a moment that i need to go outside and do some breathing or i'm going to kick off or explode and then you get the feedback loop of oh i went and took a breath and now i can watch my heartbeat go back down
0: it's a really useful concrete strategy it gives you agency right
3: There's, yeah, lots of things that you can do, particularly sort of short term, if you're just trying to basically switch your system from your sympathetic to your parasympathetic system, things like pace breathing is really good, but it's quite hard for young children particularly to be able to do that properly. So I think things that work for younger children, like under the age of 10 is more like muscle relaxation stuff, very intense, like squeezing different muscles and relaxing them, um, really intense exercise for like five or 10 minutes. So jumping up and down loads and loads and loads for a really short period of time. Again, it then just brings your heart rate down, which like flips you to your parasympathetic nervous system. And the other one that is really, really effective um, although you shouldn't do it if you're sort of really underweight or you have heart things, is just have a um, sink of very, very cold water, that even like icy water. And this works for anybody of any age. And if you put your face in really, really very cold, cold water for as long as you can and do it at least three times, then it automatically flips you into your parasympathetic nervous system and it brings your heart rate down, it slows your breathing down, and It doesn't take away from whatever it has happened that has caused all the stress, like that thing is still there. But what it does do is give you like a little chunk of time to think about the things that you might be able to use to help you. Because I think often what happens is that when you are really dysregulated, you forget to use the things that help you because you're too dysregulated. But if you have these very quick tools that can just help calm you down so that you can then access other things. To us. I mean, they're completely on a tangent, Rupee, but
2: <laughs> that's yeah. brilliant. That ice one, I love that, and that's a new one. And I, I often, often suggest to clients to have a, a list in their wallet, somewhere accessible, because of that very thing of like my brain can't get online enough to tell me the things I need to do right now. So, but like if I can just lift out a piece of paper from my wallet that says these are four things I can do, it just lowers the threshold.
0: I think that's incredibly helpful. The other thing I really enjoyed and, and wanted to talk to you about was this idea of kind of breaking away in order to come back and reconfigure. And we talked about you, Em, like when you went to Australia. <laughs> How far away, away can I come, go? <laughs> you, exactly. I wondered if you had any thoughts about that.
3: I think that it's a really personal thing and everybody has a slightly different experience I I think for me if it's not sort of too much personal information (laughs) um I was quite a late developer and it took me a long time to do what lots of people do in their teenage years of sort of individuation and separation and working out who I was by myself without being in the context of my family because we are a close family and that Is great, but also has its own (laughs) challenges. So I think for me, I needed to be somewhere really, really far to be able to work out who I was, (laughs) not in connection. And it it, it didn't mean... Not a sister
0: or a daughter.
3: Right. And that allowed me to then be close because I didn't feel like I was having to be this version of myself. I could be whoever I wanted because I was in Australia and no one knew me. And then that sort of allowed me to then become closer to all of you again. But I think, you know, everybody has a different kind of version of that sort of adolescent period of trying to work out who you are. And for some people, they might need to go far away. Not everyone gets to go to Australia, but um, a sort of version of that, of working out who they are, not in the context of their family.
2: And that sometimes, I guess, anger is one of the ways that we push our parents away in those teenage years to get separation, because it's actually quite painful and difficult <laughs> to separate from your parents. And there's a lot of pulls and draws to stay close, but it's a really necessary process. Anger's the good really... energy, isn't it? It's the energy of separation. Of Like, no, this is my boundary. I yeah. don't want you to do that anymore. Stop it. I don't like it. Even if a lot of that comes out in really small and irrational ways, it's like starting to really create that boundary between you and your parents that you need as an adult because you need to go off into the world and have the boundaries that say, no, I don't like this and this is who I am. Um But it comes out in all the it bonkers mini arguments over, no, you can't tell me that I have to have my hair like this or whatever. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it's also what makes parenting teenagers really really hard because whatever you do you're not going to be getting it right they're going to be annoyed with you and I think also a lot of teenagers bounce between wanting to be independent and go and do their own thing and then like suddenly being really quite young and wanting to be looked after and as a parent you're like which one do you want me to be because I'm, I'm trying to do my best and it's quite hard to know what you need because whatever I do it feels like I'm doing it wrong on a on
2: a different topic, I thought it would be interesting to touch on um when you t- you touched on the discomfort of talking about money and the desire yes, I
3: wrote about that
2: to make money, and it is still a taboo difficult thing to talk about, isn't it? And I thought even you know lots of therapists struggle with the idea of helping people and making money and can be really terrible with asking people to pay or invoicing people or whatever because we have this kind of loaded divide don't we of like good people who don't earn very much and then if you earn loads of money somehow you're a less good person or i mean that's kind of crudely put What, what were your thoughts um
3: why do we find it so difficult to talk about money? And there's, I think I've mentioned it before, but there's this great podcast called Death, Sex and Money. And the sort of the tagline is the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. (laughs) And I think money really (laughs) is one of those things that we all think about a lot. And it, it forms such a big part of our, you know, our intimate relationships, our family life. It definitely takes up, quite a lot of space in most people's brains and yet a sense of when it comes to talking about it with other people there's some sense of shame or real discomfort about talking about it so there's just this huge disparity between I think how much space it takes up in most people's internal world and how much we actually talk about it with other people and I I don't quite know why that is. I think it's something to do with shame. or I think it's also quite an English thing. I think it's the cultural thing.
0: No, I think it's just loaded with so many feelings, like fear and shame and powerlessness, power. It's just so emotionally loaded, and I don't think people recognise quite how emotionally loaded it
2: is. Is it because money is a proxy for power? And I don't mean power just as in getting to do what you want, but it's the power to make yourself safe, the power to feel like you're free, the power to have choice that money is kind of loaded with the ability to allow you to do those things, which to some extent it can and to some extent it can't.
3: Yes, but that doesn't really explain why it's hard to talk about it.
0: There is a generational thing. I mean, the, the way I was brought up is that you just were not allowed to talk about money. It wasn't something that you could talk about in the same ways that you couldn't talk about sex or death. But why? It was, I was brought up rude. that it was rude to talk about money what you earned, There must be a a story behind that, isn't there?
3: Is it to do with, like, you don't want to feel bad yourself? You don't want other people to feel bad? I don't know. Mm
0: -hmm. Shall we end by talking about the gratitude practice, how useful that is, what you think about that?
3: Yes, I think the gratitude practice is really, really helpful. I also just loved his image of the hands, that he always had these hands to hold him, so no matter what happens to be able to catch him. And I think as parents, that's the thing that we probably want to give our children more than anything else yeah. is this sense of internal security that whatever happens, you'll be okay because, you know, I've got you. And I found that such a emotional um metaphor because it, I think it, it's certainly probably more than almost anything, what I would want my children to feel as adults. Yeah. But they have this support.
2: I, I think for me, the gratitude practice, I thought of a bit in terms of something that brings you back into connection. And I heard it's almost part of a spiritual practice. I know that in my life, my own versions of sort of non-religious spirituality are real sources of joy. So being outside, that feeling that it brings in of somehow being connected to this huge life force, bigger than myself—the feeling that we kind of get when you stand by the sea or you know the top of the mountain—and that wonder those, as well, wonder and, and sort of connection, aware like love in a really wide sense, and not specifically loving a person or a thing. Yeah, those kind of big connecting, belonging feelings that I think form of an important part of. Yeah, gives
3: me joy. I yes. think and and i think i loved what he said about that gratitude can be big or small like you can be grateful for your cappuccino but mm. also you can be grateful like when i'm upset or stressed about something i just like stare at the mirror and be like my children are healthy i'm healthy it's like a grounding thing of like mm. okay this thing is i'm finding really hard and it is hard like i'm not saying it's not hard but actually whatever your situation having something that can kind of ground you i think it's really helpful like a sort of mantra yeah. almost
0: Thank you both. And thank you so much, Rupi, for such a lovely conversation. Thank you all for listening. If you want to share the podcast with others, please do that. Rate and review and subscribe and come and listen to us next week. Bye bye.